Welcome again to Trinity Heights. Well, here we are at the Advent season, um, and we anticipate Christ's birth, and, and we look to the, the new year as well. And there's certain phrases, aren't there, uh, which appear in the gospel accounts of Christ's birth, which are then picked up and elaborated on in all of our favorite Christmas carols, which are then repeated and sung throughout the Advent season. And you know the ones I mean. Peace on earth, goodwill to all men, tidings of great joy, joy to the world, and glory shone around, gloria, hosanna in the highest, Come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. God so loved the world, love came down at Christmas, son of God, love's pure light, sing of the wonders of his love, etc., etc. And even just saying those lines, right, the melody starts up in your head, Hark the herald angels sing, and the wonders of his love, joy to the world. What a great medley by Stephen Chung. Maybe it's more tuneful in your head than what I just did to you, but you can hear the music and all of these familiar verses from the New Testament and all of these very familiar phrases in these carols and all of this familiar music help us to narrate the Christmas story each year this time of year. And of course, all of the themes that are brought forward by this familiar music and songs and verses, all the familiar themes are, of course, things like love and peace and joy and glory. Love and joy and peace and glory are put back into circulation, or at least given a wider circulation at this time of year. And so what I want us to do in this series is to, in our Advent series, is just to look at these themes of glory and joy and love and peace and see how they are made more vivid realities through the announcement of Christ's birth. This week, we'll consider joy and glory. Next week, Eric will look at peace. And then finally, we will look at love. And I suppose each week will have its own theme song as well, its own theme carol. And uh, this, this week, as we are looking at joy and glory, I suppose it has to be this one, uh, which um, actually I, I asked Sarah Beth, would, would you sing this this, this Sunday? And uh, she's going to after the service, but, but actually um, at the end, of, after the sermon, but uh, actually, she said she didn't know this one. And I was sort of like, well, how could you not know this one? And then it dawned on me that actually maybe Tim knows this one. Uh, and I sang this, uh, but it's because we grew up in Britain, and it's one of those which didn't make it uh, across here. So um, Once in Royal David City is the other one I discovered when we first started doing carol services. And I was like, Mike, Mike Byrne got up, because he's from Britain, and he got up, and he started leading worship that night. And, uh, and we started singing Once in Royal David City, City, and he was singing alone, and he was wondering, what's going on here? Well, there, there you go. It's, 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 no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the lyrics for this one go, While shepherds watched their flocks by night, all seated on the ground, the angel of the Lord came down and glory shone around. Fear not, said he, for mighty dread had seized their troubled mind. Glad tidings of great joy I bring to you and all mankind. Did you sing that in South Africa, Eric? You did. Okay, so it made it to South Africa. It just didn't make it across the pond. 
Um, or as Luke says, Luke says this, doesn't he? He says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And glory shone around. What do you think of when you hear the word glory? Um, it's a bit of an old-fashioned word, isn't it? It's not something we use very much. Okay, maybe during a World Cup. But, but apart from that very specific context, you know, what, what, when do we use it in, in daily conversation? But it, glory is the sort of thing that perhaps the, the ancient Greek heroes would pursue on the battlefield. Or perhaps glory is the way that Indiana Jones describes a mystical artifact that he's pursuing. What is it, Indy? Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. The Bible talks about glory all the time. But what does it mean? Perhaps today we make use and make do with a synonym for glory. We make do, we might say, with one half of what glory actually means, and that is fame, being made famous, being known. Which I think is what one half of what glory means, which I think the ancient Greeks and Indiana Jones point to as well. Um, and that's the side that I think our own present culture has embraced and is pursuing wholeheartedly and with all of its might. And of course, we can point to the different ways that happens. You know, there's social media where we grow our audiences to millions of people sometimes. Um, and, then, and then, of course, uh, the long before social media came along and still going strong, there, are, of course, there was, of course, all those reality TV shows. But these are the various ways our culture holds out fame or holds out that one half of what glory actually means uh, as the ultimate goal and the ultimate prize. Have any of you seen the TV show Extras? Any of you see Extras? It was a Ricky Gervais show about 10 years ago, I think it was. And uh, it's about these B-list actors who are desperately trying to get their big break and they want to make, make it big and become famous. And each week their failing, their failing uh, careers are rubbed in their faces as they run into all of these big shot A-list actors who usually treat them pretty badly and, and make a cameo appearance in, in uh, each episode. Anyway, in the, in the final episode, which is actually a Christmas episode, so that's appropriate, isn't it? So in this final Christmas episode of the whole series, uh, Ricky Gervais is, in a one more desperate attempt to achieve his own fame, has gone on this reality TV show, uh, which is meant for these sort of minor celebrities. And in the middle of it all, he has this sort of existential crisis, and he starts this monologue, which he starts speaking into the, the camera, and here's what he says... And don't worry, I've edited it down, and I've cleaned it right up for Sunday morning uh, viewing. Uh, and this, this is from Ricky Gervais, who, who is a, he's a, he's a working-class lad from, from Reading, which is where, where I grew up. And he, he's, even though he's made it big himself, he's, he's, he has his own fame and fortune in, in that sense, his own glory, uh, he's, he's still very much an outsider and, and still brings, as this working-class lad from Reading, this, this outsider's perspective. And, and so he, he, here's what he says. What are we doing? I'll do my Ricky Gervais impression as best as I can. What are we doing? Selling ourselves. Selling everything. The happiest day of my life. Oh, quick, I'll do the invites and bake a cake and get a press tent. Must have a press tent. It's a wedding. Oh, now I'm pregnant. We must televise the birth. Quick, see if Ryan Seacrest will present it. 
It's like these stars who choose the perfect moment to go into rehab. They call their publicist before they call a taxi. Then they come out and they do their second autobiography. This one's called Love Me or I'll Kill Myself. Well, kill yourself then. The Victorian freak show never went away. Now it's called Big Brother or American Idol. Where in the preliminary rounds, we wheel out the bewildered to be sniggered at by multi-millionaires. You know what a friend of mine once said? They said, I'll never be happy because I'll never be famous enough. And they were right. I tend to be really quick to, to sort of dismiss and write off our culture's obsession and pursuit of fame as something completely irrelevant to anything important and completely irrelevant to anything serious. But if I stop and think of it for a moment, perhaps our culture's pursuit of fame is a clue to something else. Perhaps it's a window onto something more serious and something, uh, a deeper longing, some, some deeper desire that all of us share, that desire to be known. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, he says, there is a bitterness that all of us experience, not resentment, but pain, that kind of bitterness. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality. This is part of our inconsolable secret. There are other ways to be known and to be acknowledged, aren't there? We can be known superficially by millions, or we can think about the value of being known by a handful of friends who know you inside out, or known by that one person intimately and profoundly and that's actually the direction that Ricky Gervais takes his monologue that I was reading earlier. At first, he's talking to the camera and addressing everybody who's watching that reality TV show. The makers, the audience, everybody. But, but then he starts to address one person, one person who he hopes is watching. And it's a woman who he knows he's hurt badly. And through tears, he starts to apologize. And through tears, he asks for her forgiveness. And he tells her, you are the best friend that I have ever had. And then he finishes his monologue with a private joke between the two of them. And it's no use going back and trying to watch all the other episodes to find out what the private joke is about because it's a private joke between just the two of them. And in that moment, you realize that Ricky Gervais' character has finally understood the beauty and the value of being known by that one person. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. It's been pointed out many times before that these shepherds were at the bottom of the rung of society. Well, not quite the bottom, because the bottom was the criminals, the criminals who were crucified. That was the bottom of the rung, but they were near the bottom of the rung, and these people had no fame of their own, no glory. They, they were the nameless and faceless unknown nobodies, but suddenly these faceless and nameless unknown nobodies are acknowledged, and they're known by God. The glory shone around them. The glory in this scene is not just about God making himself known to the shepherds, but this is about the shepherds being known by God. That might seem a strange thing to say about an omniscient God, 
an all-knowing God. Surely God knows everyone, right? God knows everyone. Yes, he does. But it's this, precisely this idea of being known by God or not being known by God that makes Jesus' words about the last judgment aimed at those people who are superficially religious or, or, or captured by false religion. It's what makes his words aimed at those people so chilling when he says, away from me, I never knew you. In that sense, these shepherds had achieved the ultimate fame. A few questions. Do, do we value that deeper sense of being known? Do, do we tend towards pursuing one type of acknowledgement over another? And, and then we might want to ask, and how might that reflect on our relationships with each other and our relationship with God? Of course, we might not pursue social media fame because that's shallow and, and, and perhaps that's crass. But we can pursue fame in our careers with a more particular audience, can't we? And perhaps sometimes we find ourselves pursuing that audience more earnestly and with greater energy than we've ever pursued acknowledgement and being known from our friends or from our own spouse or from our own God. How do we value that deeper sense of being known and acknowledged? What does it say about our relationships with each other and our relationship with God? Of course, being known is only one side of what glory means. Fame is one aspect of glory, but then there is this other aspect, this other side of glory, which I suppose we could sum up with the words beauty and bliss. Glory shone around, it says. That there's some bright, luminescent quality to glory that comes with the birth announcement. And, and then it's translated into great joy for all people. So it's translated into bliss. Fame and beauty and bliss. Glory, fame and beauty and bliss. And I can't think of anyone who puts these sort of two halves of glory together as well as C.S. Lewis does in his essay, The Weight of Glory, where he takes that fame side of glory and he takes that beauty and bliss side of glory and, and he puts them together. And so I want to read to you a lengthy excerpt of this, this wonderful essay. Um, so if you haven't read it, you'll get a taste for what it's about. And I invite you now to, to if you want to, if it helps you listen, uh, to close your eyes. And um, as... He was a British author. Again, I will do my best to put on a British accent. I'm a method actor, so I've been working on it. I am almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret would hurt so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and have done with. 
But the books or the music and the art in which we thought the beauty was located are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. We usually notice it just as the moment of vision dies away, as the music ends or as the landscape loses the celestial light. The beauty was not in them, it only came through them, and what came through them was longing. But we might say, we get to enjoy that beauty, what more do we want? Ah, but we want so much more, something the books on aesthetics take little notice of, but the poets and the mythologies know all about it. You see, we do not want merely to see beauty, we want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. And that is why we have peopled air and earth and water with gods and goddesses and nymphs and elves, that though we cannot, yet these projections can enjoy in themselves that beauty, grace and power of which nature is the image. That is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. They tell us that beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into a human face, but it won't. Or not yet. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. They were terrified. Well, of course they were. Like having that beautiful person who you've only ever admired from a distance suddenly turn their attention to you, and suddenly you don't know what to do with yourself. Only infinitely more than that. Imagine what it would be like to have your deepest secret longings exposed, ripped open for all to see, how we wanted to be known, long to be acknowledged, how we have ached to bridge that yawning chasm that lies between us, where our deepest desire is not only to be sea beauty, but to be united with it. Of course, it's a terrifying moment, but one which turns to bliss, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. The good news in Christ is that all of us might be acknowledged and known by God, and through Christ all of us might be reconciled and united with him who is the source of all beauty and the source of all bliss. The birth of Jesus, the both fully God and fully human one is the promise of fame and beauty and bliss for all humanity. Or, to use the shorthand, it is the promise of glory for each and every one of us. Promise of glory for you and for me. The promise of glory for every human. And so we should think about this promise of glory not just in terms of a promise for me, but a promise for my neighbor. And so I will end here with Lewis C.S. Lewis words once more, and we'll wrap up with this last quotation. He says this, The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid 
daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, because there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time of year where we get to celebrate the giving of your Son, the human who is God, the God who is fully human, fully human, fully God, and in, in that union, we see your glory, and we hear a promise that echoes down through the centuries, through the millennia, down to us, a promise for each one of us of that fame and beauty and bliss that you want for your creatures. So, Father, remind us that there are no ordinary people, that we have never spoken to mere mortals. Remind us of that weight of glory. In Jesus' name, amen.